On tonight's KRBD Evening Report, a missing Ketchikan man is presumed dead after surveillance footage shows him falling into the water near the city's cruise ship berths. Plus, one of Ketchikan's own is named to Forbes' 30 under 30 list. And Southeast tribes want a seat at the table when Canadian regulators consider mine development on transboundary rivers. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Tonight, mostly clear with lows around 20 and north winds to 20 miles an hour. Wednesday, mostly clear with highs in the mid-20s, north winds to 20 miles an hour. Wednesday night, partly cloudy with lows around 15, north winds to 10 miles an hour. On Thursday, cloudy with highs in the mid-20s and light winds. And on Thursday night, cloudy with lows around 20 and light winds. It's the KRBD Evening Report. I'm Eric Stone. A Ketchikan man reported missing last week was seen on surveillance footage falling into the water near the city's downtown cruise ship berths and is believed to be dead, according to police. In an email, Ketchikan Police Chief Jeff Wall says video shows 32-year-old Rex Soul falling into the water near berth 3 on Ketchikan's cruise ship docks on November 19th. He was last seen that night at the Arctic Bar, which sits just opposite the berth. Soul was reported missing three days later on November 22nd. Wall says police found the surveillance footage showing Souls fall on Friday, November 25th, and started to search the Tongass Narrows along with the Ketchikan Harbor Master and the Ketchikan Volunteer Rescue Squad. Wall said that because Soul had fallen in nearly a week before, the purpose of the search was to recover the man's body. The search did not locate Soul, according to the rescue squad. Wall says Soul was alone when he fell in, and there are no signs of foul play. He says investigators believe his level of intoxication played a part in the fall. Wall says police have been in touch with Soul's mother throughout the search. He said the department delayed its public announcement to allow her to return home and inform family members. A young climate activist born and raised in Ketchikan was one of two climate activists named to Forbes' 30 under 30 list this year. KRBD's Reagan Miller caught up with Kira O'Brien about how growing up in Alaska inspired her to pursue a career focused on fighting climate change. Kira O'Brien has some advice for other young Alaskans looking to make a difference in their communities. Find something you're passionate about and go for it. O'Brien is a 24-year-old Harvard graduate and climate advocate. Her passion for clean energy landed her a spot on Forbes's 30 Under 30 energy list this year. Climate and clean energy are near and dear to my heart, and um, very excited to see the energy list for Forbes turning towards clean energy in the way that it has. She says her childhood in Ketchikan led her to where she is today, working for a green energy developer called Total Energies as a public policy representative. My, my childhood in Ketchikan really, really shaped what I'm doing today. Um, and uh, Alaska is ground zero for climate change. So clean energy is the future for Alaska. Her job means she works in Washington, D.C., keeping an eye on federal offshore wind and solar policy. So I monitor federal public policy. So anything that's happening on the Hill, uh, happening in the White House, that's of interest to us. Um, and then I bring the findings back to the company and try to deduce what exactly that means for our business um, and our investment decisions. She started two climate-focused nonprofits and worked on the federal auctions that won her company two major offshore wind farm leases worth nearly a billion dollars. My field is quite niche, uh, offshore wind especially, um, in the U.S. It's not O'Brien's first time making one of these lists. She made a different 30 under 30 list in 2020. Um, I was on one a couple years ago, um, Green Biz. It's a very similar kind of thing. Um, uh, it's, it's just specific to climate and clean energy, though. But before Forbes and before Harvard, O'Brien was a student at Ketchikan High School. I was captain of the varsity swim team while I was there. Um, I was a class act mentor. Uh, I was in the band program, a handful of other things. She also was a summer intern for Senator Dan Sullivan in 2016. 
the same year she graduated from Ketchikan High School. She went back to work for him in 2021 as a correspondence manager. At Harvard, O'Brien was the president emerita of the Young Republicans Club. She also founded the Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends Club. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Major river systems in southeast Alaska start across the U.S.-Canada border, and natural resource development of the transboundary watersheds can have serious effects hundreds of miles away. As KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, more than a dozen southeast Alaska tribal governments and councils are asking the Canadian government to recognize their sovereignty and give them a seat at the decision-making table when natural resource development could impact communities downstream. The ever-shifting tidal flats of the Stikine River Delta are peppered with weathered tree trunks, the root systems sticking up like another small forest. For centuries, the Shtachin, the bitter water, and the surrounding land was the territory of chief sheikhs. The tidal passed through generations of leaders of the Stikine Tlingit people. The 1971 Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act extinguished what it called Aboriginal title to the land, water, hunting, and fishing rights. I call it the failed experiment. Rob Sanderson is the chair of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission, or SEITC, a consortium of 15 Southeast tribal governments which aims to protect rivers that sustain communities and culture in Southeast. He's standing on the back deck of a jet boat, idling just past the Stikine Delta. Now we're all at the table like this. Although Southeast Alaska's Tlingit, Haida, and Simpson people are part of the same indigenous groups that exist just a few miles upriver in Canada, Alaska Native people aren't recognized as sovereign nations by Canada's government. The jet boat is carrying a cross-border group of environmental advocates and tribal leaders upriver. Today's focus is the Stikine, the fastest-flowing navigable river in North America. It was named one of the 10 most endangered rivers in America by nonprofit environmental organization American Rivers in 2019 because of the potential impacts from mine development. Everything we protect is pretty, um, pretty amazing to, to get, you know, like up with what we're up against. Haida leader Guja, who goes by his mononymous Khadkil name, also stands on the back deck. But yet, for our own people at the village level, it's not a gain, it's just really it's just preventing a loss. So we're not gaining anything. You know, people look and see that the trees over there are still there, or they're in it, but that's how it's been forever, so we didn't gain anything by it. The commission is seeking what's called the right of consent for Southeast tribes in the permitting process for a dozen operating and proposed mines in British Columbia. It's a higher status than they're currently afforded by the BC government and would allow Southeast Alaska Native people the same rights as First Nations when it comes to free, prior, and informed consent about the impacts of proposed mines. Kirby Muldo, whose Gichsan name is Hapalaksa, works with Skeena Wild, a Canadian conservation trust. As we, as we say about salmon, you know, they know no borders. Standing on a sandy riverbank, Trixie Bennett says Tlingit creation stories center on the waterways of modern-day British Columbia and southeast Alaska. Bennett says her people have held the river in high esteem for generations, but they didn't do it alone. This trip today is just an, another step towards um, reuniting with our cousins up the river. Um, I'm a Tlingit Taltan and up there are the Taltan Clinkets. Another few miles upriver and through a winding slough, pale blue icebergs start to dot the water. It's an opportunity to take some photos. Iceberg right, oh, right behind there, us right now. There, right there. Yeah. All right, got you guys. Lean in a little bit. Up.
In front of Shakes Glacier, named for the seven Tlingit chiefs of Wrangell who bore the name Chief Shakes, group members share songs and stories. Like glaciers throughout the world, this one is spectacular and a visible reminder of the changing climate. The face of the glacier has retreated miles down the lake in the last few decades. The mood is exuberant and determined. For some on the trip, it's their first time up this Stikin. For others, it's a part of home. Aksin Esther Reese is the tribal administrator for Wrangell's tribal government, the Wrangell Cooperative Association. When I'm on the river, I can feel our ancestors with us, and I imagine them paddling down these rivers. And it is so extremely important for us to protect the rivers, to have co-management with our brothers and sisters in Canada. And yeah, this, this, we have been here since time immemorial, and we've always taken care of the land and will continue to do so. For now, the commission's focus is on getting Southeast tribes participating First Nation status in the SK Creek revitalization project, the proposed reopening of a metals mine in the Unic watershed. The draft environmental assessment for the project will come within the next year or two, and at that point, it will be more clear whether BC will allow Southeast tribes a seat at the table. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. A woman accused of voting illegally in both Alaska and Florida during the 2020 elections will face charges in a Florida court on December 8th, according to online court records. The Alaska Beacon reports that when Cheryl Ann Leslie is arraigned on felony counts of casting more than one ballot, she will become just the second person charged with voter fraud related to Alaska's 2020 election. Despite claims by some Alaskans that fraudulent voting changed the state's election results two years ago, no evidence of fraud on that scale has been uncovered by investigators. In January 2022, Governor Mike Dunleavy said three cases of possible voter fraud were being investigated by state troopers. The Florida case was the result of a special group of Florida investigators assigned specifically to election-related crimes. It wasn't clear whether the case was one of the three mentioned by Dunleavy. According to a public records request for the Alaska court system, only two voter misconduct cases have been filed since 2020. One remains sealed by a judge's order, making details of the case impossible to determine. The other case involves a Copper Center man who signed absentee ballots with an anti-gay epithet. The story of residential schools in Alaska is more complicated than recent headlines suggest. In Sitka, as part of Native American Heritage Month events, a panel discussion was held to examine the complex history of Sitka's former residential school, Sheldon Jackson. KCAW's Meredith Reddick reports. It's a rainy Sunday night in Sitka, and the front room of Fraser Hall on the Sheldon Jackson campus is bustling as about 20 people gather for a conversation about residential schools in Alaska. It's an appropriate location for the subject. Sheldon Jackson used to be a residential school. Moderator Yedikuk A. Dion Brady Howard spoke along panelists Bob Sam and Rebecca Polson about their work on the history of the campus. The campus opened in 1878 as a training school for Native boys. It also served as a boarding high school and college at different points until it closed in 2007. Polson, a local historian who interviewed Sheldon Jackson graduates after the school closed, said the story doesn't necessarily follow the narrative of many residential schools. Every single graduate of the high school we talked to loved it. Like, they used that word love. I loved SJ. Brady Howard similarly remembered a lot of pride from people who graduated from Sheldon Jackson High School. They kind of had a rivalry between Sheldon Jackson and Mount Edgecombe as far as school spirit. 
Residential schools have made headlines in recent years with the discovery of mass graves at schools in Canada. Brady Howard was careful to note that even under the best circumstances, these schools still worked to erase language, rituals, and traditions. And it's this notion that, you know, people needed to be saved and civilized and, and um, you know, introduced to, to religion and English and Western education. For Poulsen, the goal in documenting these stories is to prevent complex perspectives from being buried in time. Sam, a former tribal council member and longtime community member, uncovers history in a more literal way. He spends his free time clearing brush and writing headstones in Sitka cemeteries, including the plots behind the Shelton Jackson campus where many staff and students were buried. He recalled pointing out graves to a group of volunteers one day. And I showed them, oh, that's the founding member of Alaska Native Brotherhood. He's the one that built this flume. Oh, that's, that's a founding member of so-and-so. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's, those are the people that organized the 1904 potlatch. For Sam, restoring these local plots is a way to keep histories alive. The events of Native American Heritage Month are celebrating those histories and others with events through the end of the month. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick. That's it for tonight's edition of the KRBD Evening Report. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can get the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app or on your smart speaker by asking it to play the KRBD Evening Report. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Eric Stone.